0: podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jake Geis. And help me welcome again to the program, Dr. Evan Van Busicum, Sioux Nation's poultry veterinarian. He's here today to talk about the very timely subject of avian bird flu on the program today. Thanks for stopping by, Evan.
1: Thanks for having me. I really appreciate the time.
0: So let's dig right into this. Avian influenza, the bird flu, call it what you may, what exactly is this disease?
1: It's an influenza virus, but one that's specifically attuned to birds there are several different ways of referring to the each strain. I should say it, every strain has its own name, but the strains are referred to as like an H N, and an N type because mm-hmm. those are two of the proteins that are on this virus that serve as identification factors. So there's like H5, H7, H3, H2, H1, and then followed by an N number. And why influenza is so important to like take note of and be aware of is because influenza is one of those viruses that affect pigs poultry and people and that's really why we care about it so much is from a human health standpoint from a human health crossover not only for bird performance but because of that human health component and then secondarily it really hurts trade to have some of the specific influenzas affect your poultry now the poultry strains the ones that we attribute to being originally in birds are the H5s, H7s, and H6s. And so those are specifically attuned to poultry. The reason we care about H5 and H7 is because those strains are more likely to evolve and change into a high-pass versus a low-pass disease break. With a low-pass, it it sounds kind of crazy that something can be like a low-pass H5N1 or a high-pass H5N1. But what that really is referring to is the proteins at the cleavage site and how advanced they are and how hot they are for the poultry. A low-pass virus, no matter the species, is going to have very little effect on birds or their production. Sometimes they don't even realize, I mean, you don't even realize you have influenza going through your birds because they, they look completely happy. You know, happy, active, but if it becomes a high pathogenicity situation, it's when that same strain or a different strain with that same high path relationship with the birds causes mortality. I, I really don't even know how to the best adjective, but it's shocking. Yeah, You know, the ramifications for the outcome. So And so, it's bad.
0: Now, this disease definitely has the potential to jump, but at this time we really haven't seen that happen, at least here in the United States, correct?
1: Yeah, so really there's not a case that I'm aware of in this country of a virus going from a bird into a person but it's one of those situations where we always just want to be safe versus sorry and mm-hmm. so we all we talk about it as a risk because i just wanted to bring that up and say hey this is why we care about it so much mm-hmm. sometimes people wonder why we spend money on animal diseases we want to make sure that everyone stays safe and so even though it hasn't happened to my knowledge yet we can never say never don't uh, be worried at your home and think you have to get rid of your chickens because you might get influenza that's not the avenue or the the way i was trying to go about with that that answer so
0: yeah i know it means so basically what we've been dealing with here in south dakota and neighboring states here uh, over the past month and a half or so has been a high path avian influenza one that is very easily spread if you were going to define it maybe in a very simpler way low path not as quick to spread high path very quick to spread and uh, high mortality rate obviously is probably bigger than and then how fast it spreads, I I guess you'd probably say, right?
1: So even low pathogenicity viruses will spread very quickly. But, you know, the quickness of spread has nothing to do with, you know, how detrimental it is. But this is a fairly easy to spread, it appears, virus as far as in South Dakota and other states. But what's really promoting that is uh, our high uh, percentage of positive waterfowl. So most waterfowl in the last several years that we've tested haven't, been, like for wildlife surveys haven't been positive but in this last year there's basically been a waterfowl at every sampling that's tested positive some of the figures i've heard have been 20 to 70 percent of the of the waterfowl that have been tested have been positive for this high path influenza virus meaning that there's just a lot of virus out there right now in the environment and it's very it's not impossible but it's very hard to kind of keep that out not to mention, I've heard a lot of things on you know, social media or a lot of friends and family have asked me a lot of questions about influenza and like why it's all the big poultry operations that are hitting it. And in all actuality, it has nothing to do with the, them being indoors or sometimes people want to anthropomorphize it or talk about how these birds are suffering in these confinement barns. And it has nothing to do with that, truly. What, it's just a simple law of percentages combined with the fact that if you have 10 birds in your backyard and your favorite speckle hen dies, you're not going to automatically in your head think, I have influenza. You're going to think, oh, Mrs. Speckles died today. She is a five-year-old hen and it was her time. In a large-scale poultry operation where you're monitoring the birds every day and you know how many of them should be living and everything and how many you may lose per day, and you see an uptick you're searching for the reason, right? You're automatically testing. So surveillance is much better on a large scale. And the simple law of probabilities in a population of, let's say, 100,000 birds. Now, none of these sites really have that many birds, I mean, but it's just for sake of description. In 100,000 birds, you're going to have a bell-shaped curve. And it means that some birds on one side and some birds on the other side of the spectrum where even in a high path influenza break, you'll have a subset of birds. So out of 100,000, let's say there's 100 birds that never show symptoms of influenza. I mean, they're literally in a barn that has got trillions of virus particles in it, and they, don't, they act like they're, there's not a single one. Well, you also have birds that with even one virus particle, and that bird will break with influenza because its immune system is not resistant to it at all. And so if you have 100,000 birds and 100 birds in that population are super susceptible, as soon as one of those birds break and is exhibiting signs and symptoms and it's spewing out with every exhale and every defecation more virus into the environment, all of a sudden that little bird is now breaking X number of its neighbors, right? Because that was the only bird that needed one virus particle. Well, it's friends with six birds that needed 10. Well, it's throwing off a couple hundred thousand virus particles with with every exhalation. Now those birds break and now it becomes this little infection. And once the whole barn breaks, I mean, it, it looks like a mushroom cloud of virus particles in that area. And so that's why you'll see like one site break and then subsequently sites close to it also breaking because it's just amplified the amount of virus in the environment. And so it's, That's kind of why, you know, I I get a little bit passionate when people blame, like, conventional agriculture and the conventional raising of poultry as why we're seeing this. What really is the case is we have a lot of birds in the wild, a lot of wild waterfowl, geese, ducks, etc. And I'm attributing, and this is just my own hypothesis, to the fact that we had such a dry year last year. Usually when you have a normal summer and fall, there's all kinds of prairie potholes and seasonal wetlands. That birds will spread out and visit but when things are very dry maybe 10 wetlands become two wetlands and all the birds that normally would visit 10 are now into two making it much more dense and so that i think is definitely attributing to some of our exposure
0: yeah and just seeing it more to higher prevalence wild birds is what you're saying than we would usually see it yes and so, maybe let's delve a little bit into what the disease actually looks like. I'm, some of our listening audience may be wondering when Mrs. Speckle died, was that avian influenza? What would you see for clinical signs or is maybe colloquially referred to as symptoms in a backyard flock or any flock if they were exhibiting signs of having high path avian influenza?
1: So, if you have a flock of birds, however big that flock may be, and you start losing a substantial number, but if Out of the 10 birds you have, three or four of them die in a short span of time, then I would say, hey, maybe you need to be talking to a veterinarian to kind of figure this out. And what usually happens with uh, any bird affected with an influenza virus, it's actually quite an unfortunate way to go. It's not the virus itself that kills the bird, it's the body's reaction to the virus. It's the bird's own immune system working against it. And so What usually happens is the birds become a little bit depressed. So they're losing that alert quality. Their eyes might not be fully open. They may be a little hunched or shruggy or fluffing their feathers. They'll end up being weaker. You'll hear them have a wet cough or maybe as they breathe, it'll kind of be a little bit croaking because you can kind of hear some moisture, some rattling in their respiratory system. And sometimes they're actually like coughing, sneezing, choking on their own mucus really what kills most of the birds is going to be that suffocation on their own mucus because they their body's producing so much to try to combat this virus that's already in them. So it's that's kind of a, a good telltale sign, not only just like a higher level of mortality than you'd expect, so somewhere in the neighborhood of like 20% or more in a short span of time in your flock, but you're going to see that coughing, sneezing, choking symptoms in your flock as well especially if you have chickens, if you have turkeys, if you have peacocks. Guineas and pheasants are a little more resistant. So again, when we're talking about that bell-shaped curb, it's not that they can't get influenza, but they'll typically need a little bit more exposure, so higher levels of virus to get sick.
0: So if you want to try to keep this out of your flock, what are some ways that you can try to prevent it?
1: The best thing to do is to try to avoid contact with, your birds and wild waterfowl. So if you have ducks or geese on your property and they're part of your, your farm family or your enterprise, do not allow them to mix with wild waterfowl and geese. So move feeding inside. So if you feed your birds outdoors with feed or their grain or whatnot, try to move the feed indoors to discourage wild waterfowl from eating at the same feeders. Try to pen your waterfowl away from natural waterways. I know a lot of folks like to have ducks on their farm pond, but this is not the right season to allow that to happen. Now, once our level of virus starts to decrease in the environment, once the birds that are migrating right now kind of start splitting off and nesting, and if they have influenza, they either die or they've recovered, then it's okay. Yeah, hey, you know, mid-June, early June, hopefully we're through the, the worst of it. But this time right now, while birds are still in the middle of migrating, keep their your tame waterfowl, your tamed geese, and all of your other birds, if you can, away from those wild water sources. That's really the best way to do this. Some folks are choosing to keep their free-ranging chickens indoors. Hey, I'm all for it. I'm here for it. You know, But it's not something that's going to immediately remove your risk from 100 to zero. It's something that's going to say, hey, decrease your risk by 50% or, or 70%, somewhere in there, if I was going to arbitrarily kind of give you a number. But the, the more you can put a barrier between the interaction of your fowl and wild birds, the better.
0: I believe in the uh, third quarter issue of our Advocator magazine, you wrote about this a little bit on how to discourage those wild birds from landing in fields close to your barns and whatnot.
1: Yep. There'll be an article in our third quarter magazine about cover crops and using them to possibly discourage birds from landing. I'm working with a couple of agronomists to kind of give some possible recommendations that we could try. Things that we know is that geese don't like to land in tall grass. There also isn't as much for them to feed on. A lot of the fields in our state, in South Dakota, and even in western Minnesota, even if they're disked right after, there's still corn in those fields, and there's still a really nice kind of a flat, open space for geese to land and feed, especially if you're doing no-till options where you're not discing and it's just surface grain that's really attracting birds to land within short distances of our barns. Now, the trick of this is, is that, yeah, okay, we planted oats and we had tall oats that then had some winter kill, right? We didn't harvest them, we didn't let them head out, but they were you know, at least bigger than six inches in the field to kind of do a cover crop situation. The geese aren't gonna wanna land there, but it, it takes a little bit of management to get those things off the ground, right? We're looking at some brassica species We're looking at you know maybe some hemp species something that we can try to try and use to mitigate some of the natural behavior of the waterfowl that also has some benefit for the crop ground itself in moisture retention and erosion prevention and so those are things we're really looking at now there's not concrete evidence right this is a novel idea you know i don't think anyone's ever tried this for this purpose before a lot of people hear about cover crops as far as grazing cover crops for livestock or using cover crops for, you know, again, like I said, water retention and erosion control. But using them to try to decrease disease exposure is like a new thing. So what we're trying to do is really just get people thinking about ways that they can do more or do some things differently to try to make more of a barrier for these waterfowl. So they're not sitting up shop 100 feet from your barns. It does bear mentioning that, hey, we're in South Dakota, at least in Western Minnesota. We're not talking about two mallards landing in between your barns. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of snow geese that just is this never ending flood of snow geese that are just flying and cooping and feeding around these barns. I mean, against that onslaught, it's, it's pretty daunting, which is, as you can see by our positive case rate in South Dakota, it's hard to do. Now, there are some folks that are still knock on wood, high pass the eye negative. And it, all of us in the industry, those who have been affected and those who are just working with these growers hoping that every day is the last day we have a positive case hopefully this this works out well but right now we have over 30 positive premises that have been depopped because of high pass ai and if there's anything we can do to try to mitigate that risk like with this cover crop idea i'm sitting here saying hey growers let's work together and and work with our fsa and NRCS offices to try to to try some of these things
0: you know what evan i really appreciate you taking the time to stop by the podcast and talk a little bit more about this issue Uh, especially for some of the folks that have heard about it but didn't really know a lot about what was going on and were curious.
1: Yeah, anytime. Always a pleasure to share my knowledge and experience with our listeners. And hopefully this prompts some questions. I know that Jill and I discussed maybe doing one of those Ask Me Anything type events or scheduling something like that on our Instagram page or maybe on doing a Facebook Live event. And so if people have more questions that arise, Feel free to interact with us on those platforms and definitely we can work our best magic to get you the most accurate information possible and just give you more background because I know there's a lot of information out there, but usually it's best to get it as close to the source as possible and Sunation wants to be that source for you guys
0: and our listeners. Thank you to our listening audience. Y'all take care, folks.